Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Adams. Here. Adam Lee. Here. Adamowski. Adamson. Here. Adler. Here. Anderson. Anderson. Here. Bueller. 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 Um, he's sick. My best friend's sister's boyfriend's brother's girlfriend heard from this guy who knows this kid is going with the girl who saw Ferris pass out at 31 Flavors last night. I guess it's pretty serious. Thank you, Simone. No problem whatsoever. Fry. Fry. In 1930, the Republican-controlled House of Representatives, in an effort to alleviate the effects of the... Anyone? Anyone? The Great Depression, passed the... Anyone? Anyone? A tariff bill, the Hawley-Smoot Tariff Act, which... Anyone raised or lowered, raised tariffs in an effort to collect more revenue for the federal government. Did it work? Anyone? Anyone know the effects? It did not work, and the United States sank deeper into the Great Depression. Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Anyone? Anyone seen this before? The Laffer Curve. Anyone know what this says? It says that at this point on the revenue curve, you will get exactly the same amount of revenue as at this point. This is very controversial. Does anyone know what Vice President Bush called this in 1980? Anyone? Something D-O-O economics. Voodoo economics. That is the sound of boredom uh, in Ferris Bueller's uh, day off. So. I think, and we're going to talk about boredom today. Uh, that's our topic. And a lot of you are at home, maybe feeling as though you are bored, more bored than you want to be. Um, and I, I think it's important to note that having nothing to do is not the same as boredom. That boredom, I think, I'll be, uh, <laughs> I will now venture an opinion, and then I'll let my guests act, who actually know what they're talking about explain all this. But my, my thought about this is that boredom is something that can be plotted on a graph that has two axes, and one of the axes is time. Time is the dimension that we have the least control over, right? It's the most unnavigable of the dimensions. Um, and, and the other axis is consciousness. So you have to be conscious of the fact that time uh, is not working in your favor, that somehow or other you are in a place where your consciousness of time is making you feel very, very unhappy uh, about things. And somewhere in there lieth boredom. But let's find out a little bit more about it. We'll be talking as the show goes on today with several different guests. We're going to begin with Sandy Mann, a senior psychology lecturer at the University of Central Lancashire uh, and the author of Upside of Downtime, Why Boredom is Good. Welcome to our show, Sandy Mann. Hello there. So let's begin with that whole, that whole question. N having nothing to do, 
is not the same. I would I would hazard as being bored. It's your attitude about have having nothing to do that either makes you bored or not bored. Does that seem right? That absolutely correct, and that's something that a lot of people <coughs> misunderstand. Excuse me. Um, sometimes people think that boredom is is the result of having nothing to do, but as you rightly point out, it's not the result of having nothing to do. It's having nothing to do that appeals to you at that time. Uh, so, for example, there are many people who say, "Well, I'm very happy having nothing to do, and I, I'm very happy sitting back and watching the the clouds drift by, and that's fine. That's not boredom. That's downtime, and that's fine. Boredom is when we're searching for stimulation." neural stimulation and we're not getting it and it's that feeling of frustration when we don't get that stimulation that we call boredom right and that's <coughs> one of the things that makes it a little bit sort of fungible over time and and it probably makes us a little bit more susceptible to certain kinds of boredom and boredom i feel is a somewhat i mean i think it starts to pick up as an idea during the romantic era but the more potential stimulation there is the more different things that you could be doing probably the more you're dissatisfied with your inability to do those things. Well, that's actually um, the thesis of my book, um, The Upside of Downtime, um, uh, you know, all about boredom. I've been researching boredom for about 15 years now. And this is the kind of the paradox that the more we have to do, the more bored we seem to be. I mean, really, boredom nowadays, apart from this lockdown situation, you know, which is obviously uh, unprecedented, but really nowadays, we, we shouldn't really know what boredom is. You know, when I go around lecturing all over the world about boredom and talking about boredom, um, and I ask people, uh, you know what boredom is? You know, everybody, almost everybody, 99% of people know what it is to be bored. But it should be something that is an emotional relic of our past. We shouldn't really know what it is anymore because we have the world at our fingertips. We, You know, how can we ever get bored when we've got so many things to do? But we seem to be more bored than ever. So there is this kind of paradox of the more stimulation there is out there, the more we get used to higher levels of stimulation and the more we need it. It's a bit addictive like a drug. Right. One of the most boring things to do, I think, for most people is to wait in line. Although I was listening to a radio host and kind of a comedian named Chris Hardwick, <coughs> Chris Hardwick, say a few years ago that since since getting a smartphone, he has forgotten what it means to wait. He doesn't know how to wait anymore because if he's standing in line, he's not really standing in line. He's looking at his smartphone. He's entertaining himself in, in any number of ways. So yeah, you would think that this would be going down a little bit because it seems to me, Sandy, another part of boredom that comes up again and again is sort of undifferentiation, right? The the uh, an unbroken, undifferentiated landscape, a, a desert or Antarctica is more boring than Paris um, because it's the same all the time. Maybe you could say a little bit more about that. Well, the thing about boredom is that, <coughs> excuse my cough, I'm a little bit post-COVID myself. Okay. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the thing about boredom is that it is about the repetitiveness of, of st something that um, becomes boring. And that's kind of a whole point. That's the, the reason that we have boredom. Boredom is an emotion. And like all emotions, it has evolutionary purpose. And we need to get bored of things that don't change. So the, the, the desert landscape that you describe, you know, that's the same all the time. We need to get used to that. We need to habituate to that so that we can filter out those things that are no longer threatening or 
uh, of resources for us and focus on those things that may be threatening. You know, we don't want to be in our evolutionary past. We don't want to be scanning the horizon for, for predators and being distracted by those trees in the distance that never move and never change. We want to habituate so that we don't notice we're bored of those now and we're only noticing novel new things. So we, we, we're primed as humans to crave novelty. In fact, we get a dopamine hit every time we see something new and exciting. And that's kind of the point of boredom. Um, but the problem is dopamine is very addictive. And the more novel stuff we encounter, um, the more we need. And that's why <coughs> excuse me, the internet and, um, you know, the world at our fingertips is just no longer exciting to us. And and, and, and that's just bizarre. You know, we, everything is there, but it's just kind of, yeah, a bit boring now. I've done that, been there, seen that, you know, got the T-shirt. So it, it is a problem that we're just getting used to these high levels of stimulation. Right. So and I want to um, talk in just a few <coughs> minutes about the ways in which that you you argue boredom is evolutionarily adaptive. Um, but there are ways in which, as you're suggesting now, it's also maladaptive. I, I, I sort of feel as though, in, at least in the world of prose, the great curator of boredom is Flaubert. Uh, he often seems bored himself. And of course, Emma Bovary is bored. Uh, I'll just read a little bit. Uh, All the while, however, she was waiting in her heart for something to happen. Like shipwrecked sailors, she turned despairing eyes upon the solitude of her life, seeking afar some white sail in the mists of the horizon. But each morning as she awoke, she hoped it would come that day. She listened to every sound, sprang up with a start, wondered that it did not come. Then at sunset, always more saddened, she longed for the next day. So Sandy, here we have exactly what you described, that you know, it's you, you want to be in a state of mind where you would notice a ship sail on the horizon, particularly if you were shipwrecked. You, know, you want to be uh, sort of tuned up for that. But the problem with Emma is it's a metaphor. And in fact, what it's going to cause her to do is to look for that dopamine hit, look for that adrenaline hit, seek out some way of making her life more exciting. And we, we do that all the time in um, maladaptive, unhealthy ways. Uh, I mean, there's a piece of research that I talk about in my book um, whereby people would prefer to have an electric shock, a painful electric shock, rather than be bored. So, you know, we will, we'd rather be in pain than, than, than be bored sometimes, or some of us. Uh, and we do all sorts of potentially negative things to counteract boredom. So that's the downside of boredom, the dark side of boredom, if you like. Right. And, and that feedback loop can be very, very powerful that seeking, I think it's dopamine and adrenaline in some ways, but the, you know, the adrenaline is you're responding to the fact that you've made your life not only more exciting, but probably a little bit more dangerous in some way. Um, so there's the, there's the maladaptive part, but let's talk about the good news. So you've actually done experiments uh, about this, including one where you had students do very boring tasks, uh, including copying down numbers from a phone book, reading aloud numbers from a phone book. And then you asked them afterwards to, in fact, engage their creative mental faculties. And, and what, what did you find? I found that those people who were uh, bored were more creative than those people who weren't bored. Um, and the, the link to that is, we think, is um, daydreaming and mind wandering because um, those people who wrote the phone numbers, uh, it's a little bit more inhibiting of daydreaming. It's much harder to daydream when you're actually writing something. That's why we tend to doodle in meetings or boring meetings, because it like, occupies a little bit of our 
um, cognitive load so that we our minds don't wonder and daydream but we can so we can still pay attention to that boring meeting um, but it gives us something to do something to alleviate the boredom so we know that um, some kind of writing task will inhibit daydreaming so the most the, the people who were the most creative were the people in the reading condition where you, it's much easier for your mind to wander and to daydream and this led to a lot more creativity than um, the writing group but even more than the group that weren't bored at all so so I and mean, that's a good sign that that sort of goes back to I mean some of the more creative people have essentially made this point that they are the, the the daydreaming is the beginning of something daydreaming is a response to lack of immediate stimulus kind of allows the mind to wander uh, and, and if you're an interesting person, then the mind presumably wanders into other fields. So that's good news. But I feel as though there's still something a little bit, I don't know, unsettling about how easily bored we are. And, and I wonder, I don't know if this is anything that you've looked into, and it may not even be a very fair question, but I wonder how much of a Western phenomenon this is. I have a very simple, oversimplified view of kind of Eastern religion and the notion of chop wood, carry water, be present in the task you're doing. That's what mindfulness is, that rather than thinking about all the things that you could be doing, uh, if, if you center yourself and root yourself in all of the particulars of the task that you're on, you're less likely to perceive it as repetitive and onerous. Uh, but I don't know, maybe I'm, as I say, oversimplifying two different states of mind. <laughs> well, funnily enough, my, my book on boredom, um, uh, The Upside of, down, of Downtime, is um, quite popular in India. Ah. So I think that um, some of those reasons you mentioned may, may, may be applying there. But it's, yeah, it's, it's doing really well in, in India. So I think you're right. There are definitely cultural differences. Um, but going back to what you said earlier about the um, somebody saying that they don't wait in line anymore, they're all, always on the smartphone. I mean, this is a real problem in, in Western culture that we, we do tend to swipe and scroll our boredom away and we don't allow ourselves to feel boredom anymore. And it, it worries me that we're, we're not... That, that you know, if he says he, he doesn't know how to wait in line anymore, what about kids? You know, our children are losing that ability to solve their own boredom <coughs> and potentially losing the creativity that comes with that as well. Right. And and I think also there there are ways in which this exists in various different layered states. A person can be busy and be bored. You know, we began this conversation by saying uh, having nothing to do and being bored are not the same thing. Um, right. and, and I think busyness is not the same thing as not being bored. There could be an underlying malaise uh, that you're maybe covering up by being busy. Well, one of the key factors, actually, of not being bored is, fa is having meaning. And I think you just kind of alluded to that with your, um, the, you know, the Eastern culture and mindfulness. But I think when we find meaning in something, um, we're less likely to be bored than when we don't find meaning in it. So you can be busy in a job that you f f feel is totally meaningless. And that becomes boring to you because it doesn't have that that meaning. So it's a kind of about man's search for meaning, isn't it? That we need that purpose in order not to be bored. So equally, you can be doing something um, that's that's less less busy, but you know gives you a lot of meaning, and therefore is less boring to you. Right. I mean, that gets back to what you were just saying about uh, a modern generation of children who don't know how to how to entertain themselves, who don't know how to counteract things that might make them feel bored by either daydreaming in a creative way that that there's a stillness 
that you have to be capable of if you are going to think about meaning, if you are going to take a moment to think about what it means to be alive in the universe, who you are as a person. You know, it's sometimes a little scary to think about these things about living and dying and what it all means. But if you are constantly bombarding your own synapses with all kinds of exciting or, or pseudo exciting stimuli, you don't ever get to the stillness where a tremendous amount of profundity lies, I, I would think. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it even needs to be that profound. I think it's more like trying to find meaning in in, in a task you're doing. So if you're doing something that's very repetitive, repetitiveness is um, <coughs> a key element of boredom. So things that are routine and repetitive are boring. But if we instill meaning into those tasks, um, we can find them less boring. So sometimes it's about cognitive reframing. So I'm doing something, um, it's not very exciting, it's not engaging me. How can I make that more engaging and reduce the boredom? Well, I can think about how important this is, what it's doing for people, how it's contributing to society. You know, I can instill more meaning into a task that is perhaps unskilled, routine and therefore dull. Right. And I think so the opposite end of that, uh, and we've kind of alluded to this already in our conversation, but the opposite end of that is, in fact, this constant escalation of stimuli. So, you know, we, we it's not enough. Uh, to play football. Uh, it's You have to participate in extreme sports where you're snowboarding down the side of some especially hazardous uh, stretch of terrain. And it does seem as though in, in every arena, including online gaming and stuff like that, that everything has to be ratcheted up all the time, right? As you said at the beginning, right. if you habituate, right. if you habituate to a dopamine hit, then you need a bigger hit. Right. And so the, the thing that really worries me about that is children, because um, that's applied to children, too, now. So if you take, for example, I talk a lot, a lot of, about a lot of these examples in the book, but um, a, a, walk, a kid, a child learning to walk with um, a walker, you know, I don't know what you call those things, you know, where you push them along. Yes. Um, well, it, you know, in, in the old days, they, they, they would be filled with sort of wooden bricks. I don't know if you you, you listeners remember these um, sorts of things. Um, and, and the child would toddle along and push it along and there'd be bricks inside. And that was that. But now they're all multifunctional, all singing, all dancing pieces of kit that play music and nursery rhymes. And, um, you know, you can press buttons. I'm sure you, your listeners will know what I mean, especially if they've got young children. So walking itself used to be exciting enough for um, a toddler <laughs> or an, and a baby that they didn't need all this extra stuff. But now that's no longer exciting enough. And we have to make the whole the whole thing with walking, all singing, all dancing, musical and stimulating all the senses. So we're getting our children used to higher levels of stimulation that they didn't used to need. Right. I guess the good news is that about 50 or 60 years later, and I'm talking from personal experience, they'll have knee replacements and then walking will get really exciting all over again. Believe me, when you've had a yeah, knee well, replacement yeah, There is a bit of a, sorry, a bit of a backlash against this. So people are looking for more traditional toys now with their children and, and, and trying to go back to um, to their roots. But, you know, there is still this culture of um, what I call this whizzy, whizzy, bang, bang society that starts when our children are very small um, and we've got to entertain them and stimulate them and do all sorts of exciting things, even when they're still in the womb sometimes. And then they go to school and it's all interactive whiteboards and exciting and stimulating and they have after school clubs and, and, and music clubs and, and it just goes on and on and on. And, you know, there's no time for sort of the quiet contemplative reflection that you're talking about. Right. And I think the other 
other part of this is, <laughs> particularly for adults, I, I, it's been so long since I was a child, I don't really know, and I don't know how much, re how much research there's been about this, but it does seem to me is that if you get in, addicted to the dopamine and adrenaline cycle, where you need a, a high level of stimulation, and a lot of that stimulation will come for many people from risk and danger and living out on the edge, whether you're a high-stakes poker player or you're doing something that's physically dangerous or you're having sex with you know 18 different partners per week whatever it is that you're doing i don't think you, your system can live at that level very comfortably i mean there have to be stress related health consequences from if you if you are so urgent about escaping boredom it seems to me you're putting your whole body at risk well, that's the downside. That's the dark side that they, you do. You are more likely to engage in risky behavior. So you're going to carry on with that and seeking more and more risk be, risky behavior until the risk catches up with you and um, and you, you're forced to stop because, you you know, something happens to you. All right. So uh, we've been talking to Sandy Mann. This is great. Uh, <coughs> she is the author of The Upside of Downtime, Why Boredom is Good. You don't have to go to India to get it. You can get it around here. Uh, she's a senior lecturer uh, at the University of Central Lancashire. Uh, we're going to go out. We're going to first of all, in the next segment, we're going to talk to somebody who volitionally sought out what would probably be a very boring uh, situation, a simulation of um, of a Mars journey. Uh, but before we do that, uh, I want, because it's National Poetry Month here, it's April, uh, so I wanted to read a poem by Margaret Atwood. All those times I was bored out of my mind, holding the log while he sawed it, holding the string while he measured boards, distances between things, or pounded stakes into the ground for rows and rows of lettuces and beets, which I then, bored, weeded, or sat in the back of the car, or sat still in boats, sat, sat while at the prow, stern wheel, he drove, steered, paddled. It wasn't even boredom. It was looking, looking hard and up close at small details. Myopia, the worn gunnels, the intricate twill of the seat cover, the acid crumbs of loam, the granular pink rock, its igneous veins, the sea fans of dry moss, the blackish and then graying bristles on the back of his neck. Sometimes he would whistle, sometimes I would the boring rhythm of doing things over and over, carrying the wood, drying the dishes, such minutiae. It, what, it's what the animals spend most of their time at, ferrying the sand, grain by grain from their tunnels, shuffling the leaves in their burrows. He pointed such things out, and I would look at the whorled texture of his square finger, earth under the nail. Why do I remember it as sunnier all the time then, although it more often rained, and more birdsong. I could hardly wait to get the hell out of there to anywhere else. Perhaps, though, boredom is happier. It is for dogs or groundhogs. Now I wouldn't be bored. Now I would know too much. Now I would know. Sandy Mann, thank you for spending some time with us. Thank you very much. Very interesting. Not boring at all. No, okay. And we'll take a break. We're going to talk to Kate Green on the other side of that. Uh, she spent four months in a Mars simulator.
are you doing? Bored. What? Bored! No. Bored! Bored! All right, see, boredom can be dangerous. Uh, we're going to talk now to Kate Green. Uh, as I said, uh, going into the break, Kate Green sought out, one might say, uh, a potentially very boring situation. Kate Green is a poet, essayist, and former laser physicist whose work has appeared in Eon. We've now decided, I think officially, we're going to say Eon, uh, although we've never known how to pronounce that magazine. Uh, the Atlantic, a Slate, and Wired, uh, among others. She spent four months in a Mars simulator. Her book, Once Upon a Time, I Lived on Mars, Space Exploration and Life on Earth, will be published in July. You can pre-order it now. But then you'll just be bored waiting for it. So, uh, But go ahead anyway. So Kate Green, welcome to our show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So, this first of all, maybe you could just describe the conditions of a Mars simulator. I mean, what does that mean to be in a Mars simulator? Sure. Well, this is a project called High Seas, and I was um, on the first mission in 2013. And this was a four-month simulation of a Mars surface mission. That meant that there were six of us living inside a dome on the slopes of Mauna Loa in Hawaii. Uh, pretending essentially to be astronauts on, on a Mars mission. Um, that meant we conducted science experiments and basically had to endure the isolation that astronauts would if they actually were living on Mars. So, Kate, I think your audio might be feeding back somewhere. I don't know if you have the show yeah. on a computer or something like that. Um, but if there's anything that you can turn down, you probably yeah, should because it will drive you completely How about crazy. that? Is that better? I think you're better now, yeah. So, um, so yeah, so... In this situation, um, I think one of the things that comes out in, in the, the piece you did in Eon is that you almost don't know how bored you might be or how how uh, there's this, it begins, I think, with, with a scene where this you suddenly see an intruder in the space, which is unthinkable. Here is this, you know, very, very controlled and thought out experiment in isolation. And suddenly there's this weird dude walking around. Uh, what can this possibly mean? And it simply means that one of your coworkers has shaved, right? <laughs> right. I wasn't able to recognize them right away. And that was that was the first time that I realized I might be bored. So going into the whole experiment, I, I kind of thought of myself as a person who didn't get bored. I was always able to find something to keep me busy. And I felt like even in the most like typically boring situations, like a boring lecture or just, you know, laying around doing nothing, I didn't really feel bored. But what I learned was over the course of about four months, the well, it, there was a daily grind. You know, we always felt busy. We were always doing something. But the the fact of our living condition just didn't change. It was pretty static. You know, we had the same white puffy walls every day. We were wearing the same outfits. Um, you know, we had our changes of clothes, but like we had each seen um, everyone in their changes of clothes many times over. We were eating some of the same foods. We were using some of the same ingredients again and again. You know, we were some conversations repeated themselves. You know, we were only really talking to each other um, for four months because we had asynchronous communication with the outside. So this lack of stimulus over time really did wear, wear on me. And I hadn't realized that it was making me kind of exist in this low-level boredom until that experience of seeing my crew member um, who I didn't recognize and truly thought was an intruder. And then my senses were like jacked up to such a high level. I thought, wow, this is, this is the most excitement I've experienced in four months. That's for sure. 
Right. And that sort of gets to the argument that Sandy Mann uh, presented in the previous segment, which is that there's something evolutionarily adaptive about boredom, that in fact, in a situation where it would be important for you to notice a change in your environment, an intruder would be a real problem in this situation. Your senses were jacked up they, be, because, in fact, the lack of stimulation was making you a little bit more attentive to certain things. That's probably kind of good news instead of bad news. But I want to get to that, <laughs> that, that thing that's that, that you talk about in the essay, you know, and that's the sort of, once again, the, the unbrokenness of a situation, the uninterruptedness of a situation. You talk about Shackleton's crew being st stranded on the ice floe, you know, and that, you know, and also about, about a woman who, who skied across Antarctica. And, and for her, you say the sun became a friend at a certain point because unlike everything else, the sun changed all day long. The sun just doesn't sit there, right? It moves around in the sky. You're st you start looking for anything that won't just stay the same all the time, which is an even bigger problem, I would assume, for Mars astronauts. Absolutely. Yeah, that sun moving across the sky was so interesting to me because it just um, demonstrates the fact that any sort of change or movement can be, um, you can you can identify with it and you can it can almost become a friend. Um, an interesting example of that that I came across was in our workout videos. So we, uh, many of us use P90X workout videos. It's a nice four-month progression. Um, and Tony Horton is the host of that. And Tony Horton has um, a really interesting personality for this because he talks nearly constantly during these videos. And I realized that, you know, the second or third time I saw one of these workout videos that I had missed so much the first time, but I was able to pick up so much more. So like I was actually, um, I found these as really rich um, environmental stimuli because uh, there was so much going on. And then eventually it did feel like um, I, I saw relationships emerge between the, uh, the, the actors in, in these in these videos and that hadn't been there before. Like there were two of them that really seemed like they were falling in love over time. You know, I, I couldn't be sure, but that's that's something that my mind was doing to kind of keep busy. I noticed. So you're uh, um, an essayist and poet. I assume. Well, I actually know that you were writing while you were there. So much of poetry kind of involves the process that you described a little bit. So much of poetry seems to involve noticing, uh, noticing something that might have flown by under other, uh, other circumstances, kind of almost slowing time down enough or repeating something enough to notice. So what did this experience do to you as a poet? Well, I just, I, I just want to say that I think boredom is really useful for poets. Um, that sort of like itch and irritation that you're you're not seeing something you should be seeing or doing something you should be doing. It helps helps you reconfigure uh, yourself and the world in a way, and it it can it can it can in some ways open up insights that might not have been there if you had just been keeping busy doing things to to keep your mind um, kind of engaged otherwise. So for me, you know, I, I went into this Mars mission feeling like, well, I mean, I was I was a science writer going into it, and I wrote blog posts for. A, a couple of publications and um but i also read a lot of novels and i read a lot of poems and um i had been writing my own poetry for a little bit but after the mission i i felt like there was so much worth noticing on this planet it seems maybe um a little bit hackneyed in a way because you know you don't know what you have until it's gone and for four months i couldn't go on a hike i couldn't ride my bike 
down the street and meet a friend at a beer garden. You know, I, there were so many things that I couldn't do. And when I, when I came back, I, you know, I, I really savored swimming in the ocean and I really savored those early interactions with other people, people who weren't just my crew members. And I, I truly noticed so much more that I hadn't noticed before. Right. I, here in Connecticut, where I live, everybody has turned into a hiker. You know, they can't go to work uh, in many cases. They can't go to restaurants, movies, all kinds of things that they used to do for stimulation. They can't go shopping at the mall. Um, so everybody's a hiker to a point where there's an actual social dis social distancing crowd problem in, on hiking trails. And the police have had to uh, begin kind of controlling how many people can be on some of the better known hiking trails. But, but I do think once you get outside and feel the breeze on your face, and uh, watch, you know, the leaves move in the wind and uh, see the clouds obscure the sun, you start thinking, oh, yeah, uh, I wasn't really noticing any of that three months ago because I had this whole really, quote, unquote, busy life. Yeah, I've noticed something similar uh, where I live. I'm in New York uh, in Washington Heights near Fort Tryon Park, which I'm so grateful for that I have a beautiful park available to me. And so on my walks in the park, I have noticed that so many people are suddenly bird watchers, you know, just fascinated by the cardinal and the tree and the sounds that it's making. And so many people are noticing the dogwood blossoming and taking pictures of it. And, and just really, I mean, one person I saw just stopped and looked at the stone wall and was just looking at the stones in the wall. <laughs> so I'm seeing a lot of changed behavior. This isn't, these aren't the normal walks that I've, I've been taking um, over the years that I've lived here. Yes, everybody's a transcendentalist now. Um, so um, one of the things you deal with, I think, that's very important. I'm not sure we've stressed this enough on this sh show yet, but there is, I think, a shaming that goes on about boredom uh, that you know, as children are told only boring people ever get bored, that if you're bored, that's some enormous failure on your part. Uh, and you push back a little bit, bit against that idea. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I do think that that comes from a cult of productivity and efficiency, and and that's just the you know economic reality that so many you know so many of us live in that um, your value comes from what you can produce. And I think that you know that that means that it's easy to uh, think that boredom is a bad thing. If you have enough time to let your mind wander, then that means that you're not doing. Uh, the work you should be doing as an adult, you know, or that means that there's, it does feel like in modern life, I would say um, in this culture in particular, that there's always something to do. We're always behind on things. So if you don't have that going on, if you actually are bored, or if you even seek out boredom, you're doing something very different from what the mainstream does. So um, yeah, I, I think that but then I think that's a little paradoxical, too, because I, I wonder if in that in that push for productivity and, you know, the busyness, if we're not actually more bored than ever, you know, um, if if that's if it's just masking our actual boredom, you know, we we move toward these behaviors so that we don't have to deal with the irritation, that itch that we feel when we get bored, you know, that that propels us to try something new or or like cast our mind into a different space. Maybe maybe that's been uncomfortable and and many of us are happy to just kind of slide into a, a routine or, or a busyness lifestyle. So it's, it's kind of, it's boredom is so paradoxical to me. I, I still, you know, I am not an expert on it, but I do like thinking about it and in particular, my own personal brand of boredom. And I think that that's an important um, thing to bring up because I, I don't think any 
one's boredom. I don't, I don't think that, I think that each person's boredom is, is very individual. It's, it's incredibly subjective. And, you know, when you discover what it is for you, I think that that could be a very powerful thing. I think that's a really great point, you know, that that notion that everybody is dealing with this the same way. I mean, you know, once again, to return a little bit to some of the stuff uh, from the first segment, some people deal with boredom very maladaptively. You know, they are going to get involved in self-destructive behaviors. Uh, they are going to become distracted and have uh, accidents or they're going to engage in stress eating and do things that make their bodies unhealthy. There's a whole bunch of other people who are going to go just the other way with boredom. They're going to, it's going to cause them to, in all the ways that you and I have been talking about, notice more, create more, make wor the world more interesting. I'm also thinking, you know, one of the songs we didn't pick for today uh, was Daydreaming by Radiohead. But clearly there, Tom York has tried to create the musical approximation of what it's like to be daydreaming. Uh, and you can't do that if you're playing Candy Crush and, and Angry Birds and stuff like that. Just going to get you up. Online. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Uh, I can hear a cat booking somebody right now. Um, yeah. So, um, or that could be Betsy booking somebody. All right. So anyway, I, yeah. Finish your thought, Katie Green. That whole idea, anyway, that you know, you, you could you could use a state of daydreaming and boredom to create something profoundly real, but you could also use it to go destroy yourself. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's interesting to like uh, establish that dichotomy self-destructive versus like generative. And I think that actually in some ways plays into the cultural ideas of, you know, what is productive and what isn't. Like, obviously, if you're hurting yourself and others, that's not great. But, you know, there's uh, I, I think that there's there's also something to be learned in almost all experiences and to uh, judge those harshly. I, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's interesting when you think about um, sort of the, the type of person who maybe makes so bad decisions and maybe because of boredom, but, but there might be something valuable in those in making some of those bad decisions too. And I'm not stressing bad behavior, but um, just more of a, a maybe a, a withholding so much of judgment that um, it doesn't have to always lead to something good and productive. It can, it can be something else too. And, and I, I just think that that's kind of human nature. We are adaptive creatures and we seek out um, stimuli in all sorts of ways. And, and then we, we move through that. We learn from it. So I think that, I think that all of that comes from boredom and, and just us interacting with our environments. Um, last question. Um, what would you now tell? I mean, first of all, these astronauts who are going to do this, these people who, who go to Mars, we are talking about hundreds of days of, of confinement, uh, hundreds of days in which uh, access to stimuli will be very minimal. You won't be able to climb up on the mast uh, and try to fix something the way Shackleton's crew might do. You won't be able to uh, feel the sun changing its arc in the sky as it shines down on your face you're going to be pretty wrapped up there so what would you what would you tell somebody who was about to make that journey about what you learned about the boredom part of it well i mean i would tell someone pretty much the same thing that i would tell people now who are cooped up in in their apartments or their homes is to uh first of all expect it to be hard uh this is actually not easy and it's it goes counter to everything that humans have evolved to do, you know, to live in a space that isn't changing. And then, um, you know, seek out ways to, to uh, 
stimulate yourself, brighten your senses, look for, you know, um, read new books, have interesting conversations, uh, smell new scents, eat different foods, you know, just try to try to figure out a way, move the furniture around. If you can do get into interior decorating, if you can make some art just to keep yourself busy, move your hands, that sort of thing. And, and I have a hope that in a future Mars mission that uh, there will be um, human factors designers who will take into consideration the fact that people really do need uh, options and and, and change in their environment and, and potentially design a space that could help them do that. So, um, but also importantly, I think, you know, talk to people, reach out to people back home and remember your purpose that you're on this incredible mission to Mars. You know, I'm speaking to this future hypothetical astronaut crew and, and isn't that just magnificent? You know, we had something similar going on. We of course were not on a, an actual Mars mission, but we had a sense that we were helping a potential future Mars mission. And so when things got tough, I tried to remember that we had that purpose. And, you know, as we're all cooped up inside these days, I am, I'm trying to call on that purpose again, too. We're, we're doing this, we're doing this for everyone. And, and that, that's, uh, that really calms me when I'm not quite sure uh, <laughs> what I'm going to do next, or I'm kind of uh, bouncing off walls. You know, I think about our, all, all our shared purpose that all of us have right now. Well, Katie Green, everything that you just said is the perfect setup for our final segment today, which will be with somebody who decided to deal with the boredom, the confinement, the lack of stimulation by sewing masks that people might need. So, Katie Green, thanks very, very much for being with us on this segment. Uh, we'll take a break and we'll be right back. We're back. Uh, I'm here uh, at my house doing this show with Betsy Kaplan and Cat Pastor. Cat's the person who uh, keeps all of the technical stuff rolling and sounding great here. And she's backed up by all kinds of people like Jean Amatruda, Joe Cost, uh, TJ Coppola. Uh, Betsy Kaplan is the senior producer of the show. She's the one lining up all these guests and getting me ready to talk to those guests. Uh, and tomorrow on The Nose, we're going to have our regular cultural roundtable. We're watching a series called Dave on Hulu. I couldn't even begin to explain Dave to you right now. Also, a terrific I think um, uh, sort of special on Netflix uh, called John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch. I think it was what it's called. We'll also talk about what happens when the people in culture that you love are snatched away from you by coronavirus. And that happened to me last night. Uh, Adam Schlesinger, whose uh, music uh, with uh, well, Fountains of Wayne had been very important to me. Uh, and I, I was also thinking about the fact that one of the things that he wrote about so wonderfully was boredom. He has one song called, uh, or it could be a Chris Collingwood song, I don't know. It's called New Routine. It's about people who think they need to change their routine. They need to move to Lichtenstein. They need to go someplace else. But it's, it doesn't really change that much at all. And there is also uh, this song, which is called All Kinds of Time. i 
a little bit ironic and paradoxical and sad right now. But let's uh, end with something a little bit more inspiring. Crystal Douglas is the owner of Music City Sewing, a company that sews custom costumes for entertainers, but is currently doing something else. Uh, Crystal Douglas, uh, like a lot of people, you found some of your normal work fading away from you. Uh, you also found uh, a period of confinement and maybe not enough to do. So how did you solve that problem? Hey, Colin. Yeah, uh, honestly, it's kind of wild. The moment of um, of realizing that every project you've had scheduled for the next four months is contingent on public gatherings and concerts coming together. So <laughs> that was a wild realization. And I I'd sat for a minute, just kind of dumbfounded. And then honestly, it's like I'm a helper by nature. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm an action taker. And so when everything started shutting down, I just felt like being called to sit on your couch doesn't appeal to me much, you know? <laughs> So uh, I, I saw a Forbes article, and I just immediately knew that was a thing that we should be doing. So you sew masks. Uh, how, how many of them are you able to do in the course of a day? Uh, in the start, I think the the fabric one, so far we've done about 600 in the last hmm, eight days, okay. I think. That's a uh, lot. That's the average. You know, when you're, yeah, when you're really going and you've got it all, because I, I batch everything. So it's like I cut everything first. I move over. I sew the same specific seam over and over and over again. And that way I can turn. Like if I'm really working nonstop, I can do 90 to 100 a day. So I was talking to Katie Green about this uh, and to uh, Sandy Mann, our first guest, about that whole notion of chop wood, carry water, that you're not bored if you can stay very present in the task that you're doing and notice it. I, w I would assume that kind of mindfulness is a big key to making what you do more rewarding for you. Absolutely. And that's honestly, that's the biggest realization that I've had just in these past two weeks is how meaningful and intentional my sewing has become. You know, because for me, it's it's a legacy. It's a family trade. You know, I've I've done it because I was taught by my great aunts, you know. So for me, it's a legacy. But, you know, I turned it into a, a living, breathing company. Um, and so for everything to change in an instant and then to turn around and go, oh, wow, like you're not just sewing. You're you're helping arm these nurses for battle, basically. So it, it changed the intentionality behind it. Right. So how, where do the masks go? I mean, you say they, they're going to nurses. How, is there just a really good pipeline where they can get them from you and get them to the people who need them? Yeah. Honestly, it's, uh, I mean, I've been in Nashville for a while, and so uh, I'm pretty plugged in. I've got friends who are nurses. Um, but so we sent, we sent several hundred to St. Thomas West. Um, my friend is in their COVID unit, and they needed some, the, the covers, um, the surgical mask covers. So we sent about 240 there. Um, we've also sent some to um, Williamson Medical. We've sent some to Centennial. Um, right now, we're actually working through a big run for the assisted living facilities. 
So um, we're doing that right now. And then uh, I'm also in a group in Nashville that has now over like 300 people and it's called MedThreads. And it's all people just volunteering. And we've at the at the moment now it's a well-oiled machine. So, you know, we've got a Google form and you can just sign up for however many you want to sew. And one person cuts, another person runs and picks up the supplies and, you know, distributes them to people. Everybody sews them you know, from their own homes. And then somebody else does a porch pickup of all of those. And then they get transferred to to the next hospital on the list. Wow. Well, Crystal Douglas, you can't be bored or boring when you're doing something, (laughs) not when you're doing something extraordinary. And that's what you're doing right now. You're doing an extraordinary thing. So on behalf of all kinds of people, thank you so much. And it's so good to hear a story about someone who uh, coped with the whole problem of boredom uh, in such an unusual and inspiring way. Thanks for being on today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. That was Crystal Douglas. She's the owner of Music City Sewing, a company that sews custom costumes for entertainers, but is currently sewing masks for healthcare workers. That's the end of our show today. We hope that you weren't bored. Of course you weren't bored. This is a damn interesting show. Uh, and we will be back with the news tomorrow uh, talking about all kinds of things. And thanks once again to Cat Pastor, Betsy Kaplan, and the whole crew. Oh, Katie Tularski and Tim Rasmussen. I didn't mention them the first time around. Thanks to all of you for listening, too. Still sitting in the broad daylight Cause I'm blue